Welcome to the Ruby Book Club podcast, where we read an hour of a Ruby book each week and dissect it with you. I'm Saran, developer and founder of Code Newbie. I'm Nadia, developer and director at Ignition Works. So we're currently reading Refactoring, the Ruby edition. Today we're going to begin chapter two, called Principles in Refactoring. We'll be discussing topics like the origin of refactoring, why and when you should refactor, why refactoring works, and how to broach the subject in the workplace. And remember that you can follow us on Twitter at Ruby Book Club. And if you're reading along and you're on Twitter, tweet with us and let us know what you think of the book so far. We'd love to hear from you. So what did you think of the reading this week? So this week was slightly different to the previous few weeks because rather than stepping through code, it was a more in-depth discussion around different topics around refactoring. And I enjoyed reading it. There were a couple of anecdotes in there, which was nice to have. But a lot of the time I did think like, oh, refactoring is obvious. Why should you need to work so hard to convince people why and when you should do it? But I understand that Mm -hmm. people come from different backgrounds and you do need to have all these arguments ready to to convince people that it's something that you should be doing. Yeah, it also makes me wonder if that's a reflection of when this book was originally published, Mm. right? Because we're reading it several several years. I actually don't know. When was this book first published? So I know that the original Martin Fowler version was in the 90s. It's 1999. And then this Ruby edition was 10 years later, so 2009. So yeah, we're looking at a good seven years. Yeah. So in, in code language, it's been forever ago was when <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was first published. And so I imagine refactoring was relatively new and it needed a lot more convincing than it does now. I think nowadays it's a lot more accepted as a necessary part of the development cycle and as something that's generally beneficial. So I think we're reading a little bit of history in a way of understanding some of the arguments that were made seven years ago, 10 years ago to bring refactoring into the mainstream. I'll know we'll touch on this a bit later, but I definitely think that it's still a bit of a a battle when we're talking about the business side of companies, managers Mm -hmm. and convincing those higher up about doing it. But we'll, we'll touch on that later. Yes. So we start off Principles and Refactoring Chapter 2 with a little bit of background on where refactoring came from. And one of the things I was really excited to find out was where the term refactoring came from. Uh, But unfortunately, we don't know because (laughs) the authors say that they were not successful in putting down the real birth of the term refactoring, which I was really excited about. But we do mention some pretty important people who have helped bring this about and really emphasize the importance of refactoring, like Ward Cunningham and Kent Beck, who worked with Smalltalk in the 1980s and really got to see and prove that refactoring was really, really helpful in their own productivity and in making sure that their products were as good as they could be and that they were flexible and easy to change later on. And then we talk about Bill, oh boy, how do you say this name? Opdyke, maybe? I think Opdyke. Um, who is, okay. And he was a doctoral student and really interested in frameworks and talked about how refactoring can be really, really important for things like the C++ framework development and looked at a number of different ways that refactoring can be used. And it was really interesting because I'm not sure who the I is that's speaking I right think now. this is Martin Fowler because later on he says now with okay. Jay and Shane. So Martin Fowler says that he met Bill, that doctoral student, back in 1992. And as Bill was talking about his research and how refactoring plays a role in developing products, his response was interesting, but not really that important. And what's brilliant is that he then goes and works on a project with Kent Beck, saw refactoring in action, and then changes his mind. So then we look at defining refactoring. And 
I was thinking, oh, we, we've done this so many times. <laughs> but here, and I think this is the first time I've read this. It makes complete sense, but it's the first time I've seen this written in a book, which is the fact that refactoring has two definitions. What did you think when you got to this point where you're like, oh, I know what those two definitions are? Um, yeah, I think they made sense. I don't think I ever made that distinction. I don't think I ever thought of it as, well, there's a noun version and there's a verb version. But once I read it, I said, yeah, that's basically how I talk about it and how I use it. So if it. Yes, same with me. So we've got the refactoring as a noun, which is a change made to the internal structure of software to make it easier to understand and cheaper to modify without changing its observable behavior. So that's the actual unit of change, the, the change itself is called a refactoring. Mm -hmm. And then we've got the, the one that we know and I think we use all the time, which is the verb version. So to refactor is to restructure software by applying a series of refactorings without changing its observable behavior. So when you spend some time refactoring, that could include, or it's likely to include, multiple refactorings. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> and another point that they bring up, which I thought was really interesting, was the difference between refactoring and performance optimization. Mm -hmm. And I think that the issue of performance optimization and how it fits into the refactoring process is something that's come up a couple times now. It's come up earlier in this book. It's come up in the 99 Bottles book. I can't remember if it came up in Confident Ruby, but I'm just going to assume that it did. And what we talk about is how refactoring makes it easier for us to understand and modify and extend the existing code Whereas performance optimization, the goal is to make it perform better and faster and more efficiently, which ends up usually, sometimes, making the code harder to understand. And I think that that's why we felt that tension before. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the first time we've explicitly called it out as the purpose of refactoring and the purpose of performance optimization, they both lead to different end results. Refactoring makes things easier to change and modify. Performance optimization makes things a little bit harder to understand. And that's why they end up conflicting. And so here we highlight that difference and we're very specific to say that the goal of refactoring is not about changing observable behavior of the software, but instead it's to make it easier to understand and modify and further differentiating it from performance optimization. Yeah, this seems to be a running theme out of the stuff we've been reading lately, this idea that separate out performance optimization from anything else you're doing. It's an exercise in and of itself. And if you're doing it, you must know that in advance that, yes, I'm trying to improve performance. And you must also have a clear thing that you're trying to improve that you've measured. And I think from this theme that we're seeing that often this is something that people, developers struggle with. Yes, and even the next section when it talks about wearing two hats and we talk about how you are dividing your time between two very different activities, adding function and refactoring. And when we talk about performance optimization, that's another possible thing that you might want to do. And so this section of the book seems to be, you know, it seems to be less about encouraging you to refactor as it is understanding when you are refactoring and when you are not. And a lot of times it's not this singular activity that you do and focus on for hours and then you are done with your refactor and you move on to other things. Most of the time it's built into your cycle. You have to refactor a little bit in order to add functionality. And then as soon as you start adding functionality, you realize that, oh, this would be a lot better if you just redesigned a couple sections and then you stop and then you put on your refactor hat and then you fix it a little bit and then you go, okay, now it's in a good place for me to add functionality. And so you're often switching between the two. And so it's less about saying, hey, you should be refactoring all the time and almost making you 
more aware of the things you are doing and more purposeful about when you're doing them and why. I wonder whether it would be worth developers having something that sits on their computer display or something that says refactoring, not refactoring, refactoring, not refactoring. (laughs) Because I've definitely seen this a lot and I know that I've been part of this too where you get sidetracked to your refactoring, but then you're also like, well, I'm refactoring, but I'm also trying to add this thing. You're doing it at the same time and mm-hmm. you should never do mm-hmm. it. And I also know from experience that you can have pressure from managers to, I need this feature now. And you as a developer think, but I also need to refactor. So that also leads you to doing the same thing mm-hmm. twice. And I think if you're strict with yourself and you actually have a visible memento for refactoring not refactoring then it could actually be helpful in in making sure you keep that distinction i might try that yeah and same thing with performance optimization right Mm -hmm. we look at something we go oh this would be a little bit faster if i can just move these things around and use this method instead and so we accidentally put on our performance optimization hat not realizing that that is a separate and different activity that requires its own attention and its own space. And so we, we're we a little too fluid, it feels like. And if we can just recognize that, okay, now I'm focused on this activity. Once that is done, I will move on to this other activity. The better off we'll be. So now we move on to the why should you refactor section. And I think this is the section I was mainly talking about at the top of the show where I said some of these arguments or rather a lot of these arguments seem pretty obvious. But um, like we said at the time, there was probably a lot of convincing that needed to be done within teams as to why this was a worthwhile exercise. So some of the reasons as to why you should refactor include the fact that it improves the design of the software. So if you never make the time to refactor, then even if you start with a great code base, eventually over time, that's going to decay. That's because, you know, especially if you're working with a range of people, then everyone's going to have different styles. There'll be lots of quick short-term changes and people, you know, will put things in just to get features out. And that will have a cumulative effect of like like ruining the structure of the code as it stands. And then it gets harder and harder to uh, read what's going on, work out what's going on. And I think that, that then incentivizes developers to, again, just sort of do their quick fixes or put things in as quickly as they can and worry about understanding it later. And so without doing refactoring, you just lose the general design and structure of the code. Yeah, and I love that so much. I love this idea of our code design decaying mm-hmm. and it being you know almost this, this living thing that deteriorates over time that we need to spruce up and tidy up and get rid of some of the methods that we don't need and clean up little bits and remove some duplication in order to maintain that original design and that structure. I think that was just a very smart mm-hmm. way of putting it that makes a lot of sense. It's a way of talking about it that stands out because I think that A lot of times we look at code and we say, oh, if it's not broken, don't touch it, right? Don't fix it, don't mess with it. But here we're saying that even if you don't intentionally mess with it, the fact that you're adding to Mm -hmm. it and modifying it naturally brings about a decay that you can't really avoid. And so once we kind of accept that, refactoring becomes an obvious and necessary solution to maintain that original structure. It's like wear and tear on something, like unless you have some maintenance, then it's just going to get in a worse condition. So then we have refactoring making software easier to understand. There's a quote here which I really like because it made me think about when bug fixing and trying to work out what is going on in the code and really struggling to. So it says, programming is in many ways a conversation with a computer. 
You write code that tells the computer <laughs> what to do, and it responds by doing exactly what you tell it. Sounds like a very boring conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the reason why I like that is because at the end of the day, the computer only does what you tell it. So if things are going wrong, at some point you've told it to do something, probably unintentionally if it's a bug, but you can use that as a way to trace back what, you know, what exactly is going wrong and, you know, where where is the miscommunication here? Um, and so obviously, if you've got, you know, better design and your code is easy to read and understand, it's much easier for you to work out where the problems are. And I also really appreciate that they say, I'm a very lazy programmer. And that is one of the biggest benefits of refactoring is that when you refactor, it helps you better understand your own code. And that way you don't have to remember things about the code that you write. You don't have to kind of figure things out. You don't have to you don't have to work as hard, basically. And by refactoring, it helps you better understand the way things work, which helps you navigate unfamiliar code, which helps you level up and write code faster and much more easily. And so then we go on to how refactoring helps you find bugs, which we've just touched on briefly now. And I like this quote from Kent Beck, which says, I'm not a great programmer. I'm just a good programmer with great habits. Yes, I had that highlighted too. <laughs> yeah, I think that makes you a great programmer. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. How else do you qualify? That is a really good point. You know, and I, I love that question because I think a lot of times I'm always asking senior developers, like, what does it mean to be a great programmer? Like, what, what, what is that? How do you quantify that? And quantifying it as, well, you're a good programmer, maybe a good enough programmer, but you have great habits. And it's those habits that make you great. And that feels a lot more attainable and, you know, something I can actually control and potentially be really good at. Like I can I can develop great habits. So I like that. And so then we have refactoring helps you program faster. And it says that this may sound counterintuitive. Did it sound counterintuitive to you when you read it? No, I think that to me felt... Like to me, mm-hmm. it's refactoring helps you develop code more quickly. To me, sounds like if you keep your apartment clean, then you'll be able to find things. You know, like that to me is yes, that that is right. You have a slight cost that you have to keep maintaining your apartment cleanliness, and maybe that means you put stuff back right. You know, as soon as you you remove it, maybe it means that every Sunday you take an hour or two to clean it all up. Like whatever the schedule is. You are investing up front so that when that day comes where you really can't find those shoes or you, you know, really need to or, 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 you know, you buy a new piece of furniture and you need to find somewhere to put it, you can make those changes a lot, a lot more easily. So, yeah, that made a lot of sense to me. Yes, that's the same for me. And I love the clean flat analogy as well. And so the next question is, when should you refactor? And I really, really like the answer to this because the authors talk about how refactoring is not an activity you set aside time to do. And I think to me, I before we walk through that example with the movie rental store, I hadn't fully appreciated that, you know, because we talk about refactoring as its own isolated thing all the time. And so in my mind, I think I'd always assumed it was a thing that I say, okay, today I will refactor. But as we saw in how we did the movie rental uh, example, that's not how it actually works. You know, it's refactoring as part of 
as part of the development cycle when you need to do new things. And so here it says that you don't decide to refactor. You refactor because you want to do something else and refactoring helps you do that other thing. So it's not the end goal. It's a tool. And we talk about how one way of identifying when the right time is to pause and use refactoring as a tool is three strikes. And it says three strikes and you refactor. And I remember very distinctly, I think it was a year ago when I was at ThoughtBot, I asked um, my uh, senior developer mentor, Ian, a question. And I said to him, you know, at what point do you do you like get rid of duplication? What point do you make your code neater? And he said, on the third time. And he mm. said it so quickly that I thought he was joking. <laughs> and I kind of laughed and I was like, ha no, really. Because I assumed the, <laughs> you know, I assumed the answer was going to be a little more, you know, well, it depends on the context. Like that's kind of the, the answer I was looking for. And he said, no, really, you you wait three times. You know, the first time you just do it. The second time you just do it again and you learn more and you appreciate that, hmm, this was inefficient and this was uncomfortable. And then the third time is when you go, okay, now I actually need to solve this problem on a long-term basis so three strikes do you remember ian having a copy of refactoring ruby on his desk (laughs) i don't remember but i would not be surprised if he read it he's a very well-read developer okay so when are we applying the three strikes rule so one of the times that you want to refactor or the most common time rather is when you want to add a new feature so, I mean, this is the this is the most common time that we've also come across thinking of like 99 bottles and all that sort of stuff. You know, we want to add something new, but before we can do that, we've got to make changes to our code to make it easy to add that feature. So there's an interesting discussion here around return on investment and how you work out when you invest time in refactoring what that return is and whether it's worth it. And one of the examples that they use is if you're replacing a section of your code with a framework. And these are always, I think, tricky decisions to decide on because often one or two of the people in the team have heard about a new bit of technology and they want to implement it. Other people are less familiar with it. It might seem risky because not many people have used it. And so it's like, how do you work out what the return on investment is, particularly because often it's hidden, like you can't really, it's not very upfront Mm -hmm. of what the result will Mm be. And so in this case, for example, so one of the things that you need to consider is, so the framework, particularly if it's new, isn't likely to be bulletproof. So there's probably going to be some mistakes and some flaws in it that will that your team will take on board. But when you're working with a new framework, not only do you have your team, you've also got this wider community. And there's, and there's this bit here that I really like because I'm a big believer in sort of learning through failure. And it says that one of the big plus points of trying to use new frameworks or technologies is that even if you fail with putting it in, those failures are going to teach you a lot. And it will teach you a lot, not only about your code base, but also if you don't try out the framework, you won't know whether there's a particular part of it that really helps improve a bit of your code base. And also if you don't try the framework, then there might be a part of it that really helps to enhance your code base. And even if that's not the case, then learning from that failure means that when there is a time where that framework could really help improve your project, you'll know exactly when it is. And another time that we might want to refactor is when we need to fix a bug. And it's really interesting because the authors say that if you do get a bug report, it might be a sign that you need refactoring because the code wasn't clear enough when you first wrote it to see that there was a bug, which I thought was very interesting. And then we talk about how refactoring is an important step as you do a code review, which I really, really liked. And it says how some organizations do regular code reviews 
and those that don't should. <laughs> and then I added a note there that says, unless you're pairing and rotating pairs, which is how Pivotal always worked and what I'm used to. So that's like the implicit code review. And the authors bring that up too at the very end of that section because they say that another way of doing active code reviews is pair programming. And that's kind of the extreme side of things. And when you're pair programming, you're doing kind of a um, an, an eternal code review process that's part of your development process. And within that, refactoring naturally takes place. So if you're doing pairing, then you're probably also folding and refactoring whether you meant to or not. And so then the authors say how, you know, refactoring helps you to review someone else's code, but also helps the code review come up with more concrete results because you can say, oh, how about this specific thing you could try or that specific implementation may help improve this thing. So I can totally see that. I'm also aware, though, that it has to be communicated effectively what you're doing. So it doesn't look like you've just come along and changed all the code. And, you know, someone might think, mm -hmm, oh, mm -hmm. did I not do a good job? So it's very important, I think, to if you're doing that approach to communicate that I'm doing a refactoring because that will mean that it will help me see really check that I understand your code. We can then have a discussion around why I made certain choices. And then we can think about whether it needs any improvement or or changes or not and so it's like oh okay cool that's a really cool thing I should try as opposed to I've just refactored all your code and then we talk about refactoring as a great tool for greater understanding and there's an example here that talks about how there was a senior developer that joined uh, a team and the senior developer joined halfway through the project and he looked at the code and didn't quite agree with it and wanted to rework how things fit together. And so they started this refactoring process. Now, unfortunately, at the end, the refactoring didn't make the code that much better. It was just kind of different. But a really great benefit is that the senior developer had a much more in-depth understanding of how the code worked and how the project was put together. And so when you think about it that way, the project lost two development days towards new features, because in that time they were just working on cleaning up. But it meant that in just two days, the senior developer was fully onboarded and able to jump in and work on features. So even in times when it doesn't end up benefiting the code itself, it can really benefit the programmers that are working on the code and put them in a better position to add value later on. So I'm particularly interested in this idea of onboarding, ramping up in a new code base and being productive in the early days. This example really fascinated me because I was thinking, would, what would be the outcome with a more junior developer? Because with a senior developer, one oh, of the things, yeah, yeah. one of the things that's easier for them is that they've seen a lot of things before that so they can more quickly jump on board with code bases but you know I remember when I was getting started at Pivotal and other junior developers it took a long time even with pairing to really feel comfortable and confident with the code base um, and so I wonder whether hey if I'd started refactoring some bits of the code what would what would the outcome have been but then the other side is being relatively junior would you even know where to begin with refactoring mm-hmm mm -hmm. yeah so our next section talks about why refactoring works. And it's interesting because we talk about how programs have two kinds of value, what the program can do for you today and what the program can do for you tomorrow. And it talks about how a lot of times we're very focused and very excited about what it can do today and making sure that everything works and we fixed all the bugs and added all the features. But we have to make sure that we're thinking about it in the long term. And we have to make sure that whatever we build today is only part of the story and that the story lasts past, you know, today. And we have to make sure that we're coding for tomorrow and for, um, for the long term. And so when we think about what makes programs hard to work with, there are four things that we discuss. 
One is that programs that are hard to read are also hard to modify. Programs that have duplicated logic are hard to modify. Programs that require additional behavior that requires you to change running code are hard to modify. And programs with complex conditional logic... Let me guess. Hard to modify? (laughs) Yes. Are also hard to modify. And so if we look at these four things, hard to read, duplicated logic, additional behavior that changes existing code, complex conditional logic, these are all four things that we have addressed and we can improve through refactoring. And so if we think about the problems that refactoring is designed to solve, they're directly helping us make code less hard to modify, which means that we can think about our code's value, not just for today, but for tomorrow as well. So then we move on to my favorite section of this reading called, What Do I Tell My Manager? And the reason it's my favorite section of this reading is because I read this question and I thought, you shouldn't tell your manager. Like if you're if you're a developer who's being responsible, <laughs> the manager doesn't need to know about the internals of what you're doing. They just want to know about the business value and the features you're delivering. And if you need to refactor, then you should do that. It shouldn't be like, hey boss, I'm going to refactor. And so mm-hmm. later on when the authors say that, well, this is, it says I, and I think at this point it's Martin Fowler, because I think all of the I's are coming from Martin Fowler's original text. So when So when Martin says, I have controversial advice, which is don't tell. I was so excited. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah. What was your take on this section? So to me, it felt like, it felt like there was an interesting line between the developer and the manager. And it comes through really in the last two sentences where it says, a schedule-driven manager wants me to do things the fastest way I can. How I do it is my business. The fastest way is to refactor, therefore I refactor. And that tone was very interesting to me because it's not what I would have expected from... It's what I expect a developer to say in real life, but not something I expect to read in an actual book, mm-hmm. you know, was to kind of say... Interesting. Was to, you know, yeah, it, it kind of, to me, it drew that line between I'm a developer, I know what's best, you're a manager... Your job is to bring out the best in me, which I think is the way that relationship Mm -hmm. should work. But I was expecting this section to be a little bit more, well, here's how we can engage the schedule-driven manager and convince them. And I expected it to be a little bit more collaborative and empathetic. And instead, it was very, it's very logical. (laughs) You know, it was, it was very much like, this is what it takes. This is how I do it. That's how it's going to be done. I think that's why I loved it because I was thinking, oh, here we go, section on how you should convince mm-hmm. your boss, but really the bosses don't care or shouldn't care. And so that's why I was like, this is exactly how it should be. I really relate, you know, related to that. You want me to do things quickly, so let, I'm going to get on and do it quickly. Mm-hmm. And you've got to trust me that I'm going to do it the quickest way I can. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It definitely wasn't what I expected, but I think it's, it's a very honest book. Mm. It's a very real book. You know, it's a, this is just how it should be. So I liked it. So the final thing that we touched on in this reading is convincing managers to get on board with refactoring. So we want to know, how is refactoring viewed at your workplace? Do your managers support it? Is it something you have to fight for? Tweet us your responses at Ruby Book Club and tell us how you plan to use the takeaways from this episode in your next project. See you next week. Cheerio!